welcome to a podcast called Intrepid. I'm Stephanie Carvin. Today, we're going to talk about a big issue, and it's one that's a little outside of our normal lane, but I don't think we can't not talk about it anymore. And that is the issue of sexual assault in the military. And to speak about this issue today, I'm joined with three good friends, uh, including Amara Marsingham, who's no stranger to the podcast, Lieutenant General D. Mike Day, who served in the military with JTF2 and CanSoftCom and is now retired, and Leah West, who I'm sure all of you are familiar with, who served in the Canadian Armed Forces, is a veteran, she's a good colleague and friend, and is herself a sexual assault survivor in the military. Thanks everyone for joining me. So Amar, you and I, we broke down some questions that we thought would be useful to ask. And I'll jump in and start by asking, we normally talk about national security on the pod and we've kind of differentiated that from national defense. We have done defense pods before, but can you explain the context here? We've heard a lot about General Vance. A lot of these allegations have come out since he has retired. And then of course, his replacement, Art McDonald, has now been put on leave. There's been all other kinds of allegations that have come out ever since this is this has happened in, in 2021. But for those people who don't really understand the dynamics here of the leadership, the, the senior leadership in the military. Can you perhaps explain the context here just before we begin so we can have a better understanding of responsibilities, roles, and culture? Mike, why don't we start with you? Right. So to preface all of that, if I could, what I'd like to do is make sure that I'm setting the stage for my comments so they're not, not misinterpreted. I, I would say that sort of anybody at of my age and stage, so late 50s, senior general officer in the Canadian Armed Forces, if, if you don't start from a position of tremendous embarrassment and shame of how we have allowed this, this systemic cultural issue to perpetuate over decades, regardless if we inherited, we allowed it to continue, you know, then you're probably not in a position where you can comfortably or usefully comment on that. And so, uh, and I'm acutely aware of the role that, that I played or didn't play in, in a variety of things. And it, you know, you know, people talk about, you know, that's not the experiences I lived, et cetera. It's all irrelevant. The fact is, is as the most recent news, the tsunami and dripping constant feed of these horrendous stories should inform us that you know, nobody comes, certainly in the leadership of the Canadian Armed Forces over the last, certainly my, my career, nobody comes at this from a, a position of holier than thou. And I certainly don't. The second thing I think I want to mention is, you know, in the public eye, this has tended to be a conflation of really three issues. How the, the Prime Minister's Office PCO minister handled the Vance file per se. That's one issue. I'm completely unqualified and uninterested, quite frankly, in commenting upon that. That's a political happening. Most of the committee work, most of the political dialogue is on political gotcha, setting the stage for an election. Secondly, internal to the department, the minister's handling of sexual assault and sexual harassment. Again, that's not an issue on which I think I'm qualified. Where I think I want to focus my comments, and including talking about the dynamic of who does what to who, is the Canadian Armed Forces and D&D's leadership, their responses to the systemic and cultural roots of sexual assault and sexual harassment, including the power dynamics, right? So I, that kind of sets the stage, the lens, if you will, that I, I'd like people to just hear my comments. 
you know, with that, I do think it's useful because I think ignorance is is pretty widespread, meaning a lack of information. I think it's useful to to separate out what the chief does, what the minister does, what the deputy minister does, and those discrete authorities, and then look at all of those through the lens of the issue of the legal imperatives, the moral imperatives, and the operational imperatives that address some of the things that shouldn't be done. I think that sets the stage, if you will, at least for how I I look at the issue writ large. Leah, did you want to come in? No, I think absolutely agree with General Day. I think too much emphasis has been on the who knew what when, especially at the highest levels of government. And we need, I want to, I hope that in this discussion, we can focus on the systemic issues, which become national security issues in the case of General Vance, and which make our forces weaker and less safe for those members who want to serve. But I will let uh, General Day go into the role of the CDS, the minister and deputy minister, as he was far closer to those heightened positions than I ever was. So that's an important context too. And yeah, I agree with that. My concern is I don't want this issue to turn into the next SNC-Lavalin. This is so much worse than that. This is not the got you. We don't need a got you moment in this. We need a structural reform. So please, break down these rules for us. Right. And and a point you mentioned there about structural reform, because I do want to come back to that, because I always worry that we make structural change. We reorganize the chairs on the deck of the Titanic as opposed to structural change being the consequence of trying to drive systemic practices, cultural change, et cetera. So I think that's something that we should unpack subsequently. But let's let's go back to the chief, the minister, and the deputy minister, et cetera. And we understand that there is this sense portrayed by the media, and, I, and I'm actually grateful to the media in terms of their exposure of all these issues. But internally, it, it's almost irrelevant how it was handled politically. Because the the chief's authorities are not political authorities. The chief is not all-powerful. Neither is the deputy minister. Neither is the minister. Each of them are constrained and empowered on on separate fronts. So the, the chief is responsible for the command and the management of the Canadian Armed Forces. But he doesn't have the authority to change laws and rules. Those go through legal reviews. Certainly, you know, we, you know, Leah could talk about this much better than I, but the legal constraints of the NDA and what you can and can't do. And but just to be clear, by NDA, you mean the National Sorry, Defense I'm Act. Absolutely right. That's right. my job here. It's fine. No, that's good. So the NDA and the National Defense Act, it really does, you know, prescribe much of, of how the organization is run. Right. It really provides, if you will, a a left and right of what you can and can't do. And so the chief has a lot of a lot of authorities. And I don't mean to minimize that. He has the legal authority to give orders, but those orders aren't in all areas. In terms of policy pieces, policy tends to follow under the deputy minister piece, but people think about policy as sort of the internal HR policies. Policy has as you know, Steph, you, you know this better than I do in, in terms of, of what does policy mean? These are international policies, it's defense policy, et cetera. And then you've got the minister who kind of sits on top of that. The minister actually doesn't, no minister actually runs their departments. They're responsible for government policy direction and decision-making. And so we've got to be really careful that each issue that is addressed in the public eye needs to break down in the specific instance 
what what is ordered by who, what's directed by who. But I would argue in this case, as much as that there is legal and policy implications, the real issues are cultural issues, and that's about role modeling. Certainly, we need to have changes in terms of how sexual assault and sexual harassment is is reported and treated. I'm a big fan of external governance oversight. I'm a big fan of removing the whole continuum of investigation to prosecution to adjudication outside of the military. But quite frankly, the, the chief doesn't play a role in, in any of that once the process has started or, or shouldn't. So, you know, we, we've tended to gloss over those differences. And, and I think that's not helpful to understanding what solutions need to take place. And that's back to that legal, moral, operational construct that I referred to at the beginning. Yeah. So I, I guess we'll come back to the kind of what needs to happen question later in the pod. But I'm curious, there was these numbers that were floating around in, in the global and mail op-ed, which kind of shocked me a little bit. They said, according to their own numbers of the DND, there were 581 reported incidents of sexual assault and 221 cases of sexual harassment between April 1st, 2016 and March 9th, 2021, which on average is about 13 cases a month, every month for five years. And so I'm, I'm curious, you know, this what needs to happen question is, is one thing, but what is there something that you guys feel culturally is the issue here to that that's going on in the Canadian Armed Forces that would allow for this level of, of an issue? I can speak from my perspective. And I think a lot of the why was very aptly diagnosed by Justice Deschamps in her report that she issued in 2015. And I'll just go back to that because there's been a lot of the term Deschamps reports been coming out and people may not know the history, but in that case, the Deshaw report came out after a survey revealed a certain level of perception or a certain level of instances and harassment within the K armed forces. It was very low, certainly lower than the numbers that we, we just referred to. And in 2014, about the time the survey was coming out and the JAG revealed the number of prosecutions of sexual assault in the military that year, which again was very low, there were there was reporting in, in the media, both French and English, about significant instances of sexual assault. So there was a discrepancy between what people were reporting and then what was being recorded in the media. And that led, I believe it was the chief of defense staff at that time to initiate this independent review to address the basis for the discrepancies. And the, the mandate was really about looking at sexual misconduct in the, in the forces. And it was a stark and shocking diagnosis. And it really, really highlighted a lot of different issues. And the key to it is that, in my opinion, women are not welcome as equals in the Canadian Armed Forces. In some instances, women are not wanted in the Canadian Forces. It is a very highly masculine environment. That kind of masculinity is rewarded, which tends to allow for sexualized behavior and comments, which obviously degrades women around them, creates an acceptance of that kind of discussion and behavior. So when you have the two, an unwanted woman and a highly masculine culture, it, it creates an environment that is really just ripe for harassment and harassment 
and, and doing nothing about that harassment or misconduct obviously opens the door to women feeling unsafe about reporting sexual assault and might lead to people believing that sexual assault is permissive, uh, permitted. And then you have this cycle where it's allowed to go on and people believe that it happens and that nobody is going to respond when it does. And then there's a cycle of non-reporting and behavior that's not corrected. And this has just happened for decades now, but it really goes down to, I think, this perception of what it means to be a man in the Canadian Armed Forces and also a perception of what it means to accept as a woman in the Canadian Armed Forces. And that's really, I think, the underlying issues. I can just jump in with a follow-up. I mean, I, th I think this is where the there's a distinction between the policy and the culture, I guess, right? Because obviously sexual harassment isn't policy. <laughs> and so then the question becomes, why isn't it trickling down into the culture? What's the what what's preventing it? What's preventing stuff written on paper in uh, from actually being followed through at the cultural level? Is it is it simply that kind of insularity or is it something else? Well, I think because largely action to date has been only on paper or through PowerPoint presentations of sexual harassment training that, you know, you get the check in the box and you move on. And even as it's being made, people are making inappropriate jokes. If you don't embody the policy, right, that culture doesn't change, right? Especially when your leadership is not embodying it. But leadership, you have to recognize and believe there is a problem, right, in order to actually effectuate change. If, and I think that's been part of the problem with Operation Honor was there is a, a rejection of the Deschamps report at the time that it came out by large groups of people within the military, including senior female officers. There wasn't an, there wasn't an acceptance of the diagnosis. And so any efforts to change were seen were efforts to change because they had to, not because they recognized that there was a problem in their organization that they legitimately wanted to change. And so it became a paper exercise and you can't affect change that way. And this goes back to why the allegations against General Vance are so shocking because he put himself out as the champion of Operation Honor, which was that policy, it was a mission in the Canadian forces, but policy change to eradicate sexual misconduct in the military. And he himself is now shown to be someone who may have not been embodying the values he was trying to enforce on everyone else. So it just goes back to this idea that if leaders don't buy in, they don't accept that there's a problem that needs to be changed as evidenced by their own behavior, you know, organizational cultural change will not happen. So I think, Leah, just to kind of maybe reinforce your point, I think one of the problems is, as you're saying, like, there seems to be a sense in which the military is treating this as a comms issue, as a PR issue, and not as something that's fundamentally damaging national security or the Canadian Armed Forces or its ability to operate, recruit, retain the kind of people that it actually needs. And, and you know, it, was that the, really what Op Honor was? I would agree with you that that's how they were treating it to a point through somewhat to Operation Honor and through even to the original allegations against the CDS and the current CDS who's on leave. 
I think there was a tipping point though. And that tipping point was the courageous step taken by Lieutenant Colonel Eleanor Taylor to resign because she wanted to ensure that it wasn't just perceived as a comms problem, as an Ottawa problem, as that, that this was brushed aside. And I think that was the tipping point, not just serving as a wake-up call to senior leadership, but her being angry. She's so well-respected and is, has such, is it such an extraordinary leader. Her demonstrating how angry she was by the system, acknowledging her part in it, acknowledging that she previously denied the issues within the military or repressed them, allowed a lot of other women, including myself, to feel that as well. And that I think was a tremendous tipping point. And I think since then, I've been encouraged by what I've actually seen the, mil- uh, seen the military do in terms of steps to try and make change. And just just for context here, this was a woman who was seen as like the next generation of leadership. She was extremely well respected in the Canadian Armed Forces. That's my understanding. So for her to actually stand up and say, you know what, not only am I a victim of this, I participated in it. I can't be a part of this anymore. I have to actually resign in order for to for change to happen. I want to get back to some of the comments that Leah made with regards to the culture, none of which I dispute. Let's first of all deal with the apologists who who will want to claim, and who still claim, by the way, oh my, look at the progress we've made. Because if you look at women of my generation who were really on the cusp of so many different things, they will describe just horrendous stories from the early 80s, et cetera, and how the system is fundamentally better than it was. But if you just stop there, you have a sense that this noise, all these stories are are sort of outliers, where in fact they're not. They're still tremendously reflective of the culture we have. The progress made has neither been fast enough, it's not been deep enough, it's not been wide enough, it's been grossly insufficient. So nobody should listen to those apologists. With regards to the culture, 100% agree. Tackling it, I think, if you focus on the solution, then you really kind of need to understand the history. And so the warrior culture, you know, of militaries over centuries and millennia, always emphasized a series of different things. It always emphasized male dominance. It always emphasized the leader being the most capable, strongest, greatest warrior. And, and it emphasized that dominance being acted out in, in a variety of different ways, rape and pillage, all those other things. And, and so as time has moved on in society, and we've rightfully recognized that humans are just humans, and individually they have strengths and weaknesses, as opposed to grouping them in little demographics and applying labels to those demographics of relative usefulness, where society has moved on at a much faster pace, pockets like the military, quite frankly, have not moved on. And so underlining this whole cultural piece is still this, you know, in order to be a great warrior, you need to be the strongest, the biggest, the fittest, the fastest, et cetera, et cetera. And and you can see how what that does is it immediately denigrates whole swaths of society. It doesn't reflect the values we need. And and this is back to sort of moral compulsions, operational and legal compulsions. So no longer is that legally accepted. Morally, it's bankrupt. And, And operationally, of course, it has a tremendously detrimental effect. So until we set up the conversation along those lines... 
we make no argument of why the, the basis of this sexualization of military culture, as Deschamps speaks to it, is actually hurting us on all fronts. If I can just ask a quick question, is, is this the reason why Op Honor failed? Like, what was Op Honor supposed to do and why didn't it achieve what it was supposed to do? Right. A couple of things. First of all, I, I think when we dismiss it as a public relations effort, I, I'm with Leia, which is I actually think it wasn't designed for that. And I would also be really careful about diminishing the importance of a public relations effort. You know, we have a series of principles of leadership. I still have a little card that I was given, you know, back in the Stone Ages when I was a junior officer. And it said, lead and be seen to lead. So it's not just enough to do certain things. You need to be seen to be doing certain things because what you're trying to do is role model certain behaviors, right? And so that's a public relations piece internally and externally. If you want to have confidence, if you want to encourage people to come forward and to deal with this, you need to actually speak. You need to actually communicate. So let's not dismiss the importance of a public relations effort but it should be supporting the fundamental changes. And so it's a hierarchy piece, right? So, so with that in mind, what, why did Op Honor fail? I think we need to unpack individual metrics, right? I think Op Honor had some success and let's deal with the apologists that would point out to individual initiatives. That's great. But if you say as the metric Op Honor's objective was to remove uh, systemic cultural sexism and power dynamics, although it didn't really address that, we should come back to that, with sexual assault and sexual harassment. As a macro objective, it failed, right? And it failed because we continued to value the status quo and we continued to overvalue or be overly concerned about the disruptive effect of taking uh, action over the over the cost of what sexual assault, sexual harassment was costing us. We, we, we never really internalized that this wasn't just individual acts that were hurting individuals. We've not accepted that the impact hurts us as an institution. And therefore, we, we, we didn't, we looked at it as individual acts. We ascribed the acts to individuals we ascribed the penalty to the individual, the cost being borne by individual victims, as opposed to saying, this is an institutional-wide activity and the ills and, and the penalties are felt institutionally. And this is why I up on because we never really got at the cultural power dynamic piece here. I wonder if we can get into some of the specifics of that, because I think, I mean, it, it might seem obvious to you guys, but I think for people like me, it's not so obvious in, in, in the sense of what are actually the national security or institutional or consequences of, of, of having this kind of culture within the Canadian Armed Forces? What does that actually mean for something like national security? Is there, is there specific consequences you can point to? So I, I'm really interested in hearing Leah and Stefan's view on the, the legal issues about intelligence, about vulnerability and everything else. And, and I actually think that's grossly underplayed. It's an area I'm not really qualified to speak on, but it's, it just doesn't get the visibility it should. But let me address the operational bit. And it's perverse to me, right? Because the very thing that we laud are, uh, and rightfully so, our men and women for doing overseas on deployments, which is 
and, and they truly are a world-class capability, is, is fundamentally based on a combination of being able to do difficult things in difficult circumstances and the Canadian national characteristic of treating people de decently. You know, one of the, re you know, I, I've served in Africa, the Middle East, the Balkans, Afghanistan, I've served around the world. And one of the things I'm always, always tremendously proud of is how our men and women treat the native populations in, in each of those, those countries and those areas we work in. They treat them with common decency and they treat them with respect. And, and what that results in is a be able, attraction in that area to be able to do things. And, and we, we herald that. And yet we don't apply the same standards to our own in eternal peace. And, and where this really becomes important is I always say to people, imagine if you are in a, in a firefight, right? And you have soldiers to your left and right of you, and you're about to get up and move. And, and your ability to move in a firefight is based on their ability to provide, you know, fire and, and shoot against the aggressors to keep their heads down so they don't shoot you while you're moving. That's all based on the idea that you trust and you have this sense of teamwork and the people on left and right of you respect and care for you, you've treated them equitably. Anything that you do that diminishes that sense of cohesive, that, that sense of respect, that sense of I'm responsible for your welfare, diminishes the team's ability to operate effectively. And what we've essentially done is we're saying is how we treat other people on these operational theaters is at odds with how we treat ourselves. And by the way, we're happy to denigrate people and diminish them and assault them and everything else, but yet we expect them to trust us and care for us and protect us. I mean, it's, it's at odds. And so it actually diminishes our operational capability, how we treat our, ourselves. And the very warriors, and I use that pejoratively in this case, the very warriors that would hold themselves up as these archetypical examples of, of highly effective operationally deployable peace are, are often also the ones who were involved in diminishing the team by treating others as inferior to treating them as objects on preying on them. So the operational effects are a diminishment of the team. At best, you're a suboptimal and more likely you're destroying the cohesiveness of the team. I just want to jump in there because somebody could say, well, then don't have women and you can have cohesiveness. And the counter to that is we are not in a conventional war fighting world anymore, right? And we know through the conversation stuff that you and I and Craig have had on, on equity and diversity and inclusion in, in the national security space, that diversity of thought and diversity of experience and opinion makes every team stronger. And we are in an asymmetrical world. We need people to think outside the box, think differently. Yes, we all need to be able to time manage and do small party taskings and follow the operational planning procedure that's set out by NATO that we follow. But in terms of actually solving tasks, we need people to think differently. We need people to lead differently. Different situations require different types of leadership styles. And this was another thing that is part of why I think this culture is permeated, despite the fact that we've had women in the military for so long, is that women were made to believe they needed to conform and act like men. 
right? In order to be successful, in order to achieve, achieve the objective that they needed to be something other than they were naturally. And that's also weakened the Canadian forces. I had a woman say to me the other day, women are so strong and so powerful. And I said, yeah, imagine how strong and powerful they'd be if they were allowed to be themselves. And I, I think that this would just make us all in the forces so much stronger to actually be able to fully tap in to the human resources and human capital that exists within the forces and also actually make it a safe space and other people across the board. It would just make the organization so much stronger and so much more adaptable and nimble to face the current threat environment and the future threat environment we're going to face. In terms of the specific national security threat of people engaging in extramarital affairs, this is something that we talk about all the time. It's classic espionage stuff, right? When people have vulnerabilities, when people have secrets, they can be they are vulnerable to manipulation and exploitation. And so this is precisely the national security concern of having the chief of defense staff, right, who has access to anything he wants, presumably within his the realm of the Canadian forces, you know, is vulnerable to exploitation by adversaries. And, you know, we... We demand, you know, I remember being at CSIS and being grilled on a polygraph as to whether or not I was engaged in any kind of extramarital affair or, you know, untoward behavior, or if I have ever engaged in misconduct that could make me vulnerable because it is such a security risk. And people don't seem to be paying attention to that issue. And he was a security risk, presumably, if the allegations are true, the entire time he was chief of defense staff. So that's, that's a problem. So, yeah, I mean, I to me, one of the biggest things was the insider threat. It wasn't just the fact that, like, the CDS engaged in this. It seems like a lot of people knew about this. This doesn't seem to have been a particularly well-kept secret, although it kind of was, but it wasn't. This could have been something that, you know, at the very least, there were rumors circulating about these kinds of things, very, very easily exploitable, so the insider threat. But I, I would highlight maybe just two other things, at least as an outsider, that I would worry about. And the first of this is that, I don't think, you know, if you have a culture where sexual abuse is tolerated, I don't think that exists in isolation. I think other kind of pathologies can exist in that environment, like racism. We've seen a lot of concern about far-right extremism. I guess the issue here is that it's it's not just this one issue. I think it, it's this kind of, as we've talked about, this overall culture that that's just going to result in a suboptimal performance if, if certain members are being bullied and harassed in, in, in other kinds of ways. The other thing as well, and you know, I, I just want to give a, a shout out to the Backbench podcast, which which started up on Canada land, and they raised a, an interesting point that I hadn't thought about, but should have. But actually, there have been allegations, and, and Mike, I think maybe this goes to some of the things you said, but there have actually been also allegations about Canadian armed forces that have engaged in in you know abusive sexual behavior while deployed, particularly in Haiti. There were, uh, I believe, at least six members that you know were accused of this behavior, but there doesn't seem to have been any kind of jurisdiction in which to prosecute them. And I, I don't know if they were eventually kicked out. I, to be honest, I don't know what happened to these members. So it's not just within the Canadian armed forces, but I think this, you know, if, if, you know, we're turning a blind eye internally, are we also turning a blind eye externally? And does that actually eventually end up hurting our, our operations as well? So at least to me, there seems to be just a whole host of issues here. This isn't just about like, oh, why are these equity women, you know, being upset? Shouldn't they expect this? Or why do we have women in the military? It's like, 
there, there's just so much here that just seems to be bad. And so it, this is what makes it just so much more mind boggling to me that no one really seems to want to tackle this issue head on or in a systematic way that could actually do something about it. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm a little reluctant to say that nobody wants to tackle it or that there's willful blindness. I, I'm not I'm not convinced that that's sort of captured. I don't think this is a binary issue. I think is, is it just that people just don't want to do the work because they see it there, they realize it's a problem. But as you said earlier, like the it, it's easier. Some people think it's easier to sustain the culture than it is to change the cultures. So let's just right. let's just perform suboptimally instead of actually trying to make the change. Right. So so ch- change is obviously hard, and and so there is there's a continuum here. We mentioned Eleanor Taylor previously. She's been quoted saying, "Is the the behavior you tolerate is the culture you get." Right. And, and so this isn't willful blindness, et cetera. I, I, you know, I don't think that there's ever not a mechanism that's available to address these things, but with regards to, to how we actually scope out the issue, that's, that's part of the problem. Right. I'll be interested in how our bore sort of phrases this. And I'm actually a fan of doing that. I don't think that's pushing it down the road. I think her focus is actually a separate one, but, but, and it doesn't, it doesn't repeat, it, it doesn't change, but it adds on to the Deschamps report. I think the Deschamps report, especially in hindsight, actually becomes increasingly more powerful in that it describes the environment. Until we start with that, that complete array of, of issues, as you've described the staff, I, I think that we're going to have an inadequate response. My problem is that elephant is too big to eat, right? So we have you know, in North America writ large, a pretty significant white supremacy issue, right? I, I think that's a given. We see it most visibly down in the States. We're fooling ourselves if we don't think it's resident in Canada. We're fooling ourselves if we don't think that elements of that are attracted by paramilitary, military-esque organizations. So we've got that issue. We've got racism as a consequence of that. We've got sexism. We've got all these other things. And then we've got this sexual assault harassment issue. My 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 challenge is getting my mind around how do you deal with this? And so because I'm a product of my environment in terms of planning, conceptually thinking through problems, if I say, you know, this is too big, how do we phase this? And so what I'd be looking for in terms of addressing this is, first of all, accepting the sexualized environment, seeing its associated with a, a series of other equally damaging and and connected systemic cultural issues. And, and then actually trying to see if there are common areas that address all of them, but actually disciplining ourselves to have a priority of effort so that we can make concrete actions, right? What are the, those things, the, the kickstart activities, if you will, what are the things that we can do immediately you know, that will make a change? What are the things that we can do that will have long-term impact? And, and so I actually think that as you look through the terms of reference that General Kerrigan has been given, those are going to address kickstart activities, right? Those are going to be those things that make immediate redress to some of the things that weren't being done. The duty to report issue as, as one, right? 
How are we going to get our minds around how that's actually not worked out the way we wanted to work out? How it hasn't created space for victims to speak to the issues in a way that makes them most comfortable, et cetera. We can get our arms, arms around that immediately. Just as our board's job, I think, in part, is to help us better define the high impact, longer term issues of where we want to be. But I think we need to, to be careful about how we're going to measure success in that this is a big issue and we need to celebrate the successes. We need to hold ourselves accountable for the things we're not doing. But we also got to be a little bit careful that we don't drown in the, in the magnet of the, of the challenge here. I also really want to say that change is hard and people will make mistakes through this process. They will make the same mistakes and they will make different mistakes. And we need to allow that to happen. Mistakes, you know, cannot lead every time someone makes a mistake, it cannot be the end of their career because there's the heat and light on this now, right? If we really want to change, we need to identify the mistakes, correct the behavior or take action intended to correct the behavior and allow the behavior to be corrected and for everyone to see that process take place, right? So this idea of naming and shaming everyone out of the forces who is now trying to take action in a different way, right? that may fail, isn't gonna help. I also believe that at a certain point, we can't expect punishment for everything that's gone on in the past, right? We can't, this is standard restorative justice type stuff, right? That we do after major traumas in organizations, in countries after war, it would break the forces to penalize everyone who's behaved badly in the past. There needs to be a mechanism to acknowledge, right, to identify, to have people speak out and be heard and to move forward. That reconciliation process that is already included as part of the class action lawsuit needs to start happening now because we cannot spend the next year to three years punishing everybody in the past and expect to have a functioning for, force that can focus on being better and moving forward. Can I pile on to that? Look, I'm, I'm going to denigrate every leader in the Canadian Armed Forces, but here's the reality. Those leaders are experienced men and women in their late 40s, early to mid 50s, etc. Are they behaving today, leading today in a way that they would have when they were in their early 20s? No. And, and so, you know, I, I just, we need to, I, I think this point is so important. We, without excusing things, right? The, the evisceration of the Canadian Forces will absolutely happen if we're in a zero fault piece and we don't judge somebody's entirety. Now, are there exceptions? Absolutely, there are both individual acts that should um, prevent somebody from having a position of authority. There are an accumulation of facts that should have. But each case needs to be looked at uh, individually, etc. And just because it's come to light doesn't mean that somebody immediately has to, to be removed from either their appointment or from any future influence. 
you know, so I, I look at, quite frankly, some of my own actions when I was a young lieutenant to, to exaggerate that issue in terms of what my peer group did in the early 80s. Unconscionable. And I don't, and I don't mean in terms of sexual assault, sexual harassment. I'm not referring to that. I just mean in terms of young men behaving in a way, you know, that today isn't accepted, right? And I look at some of those leaders now who were moral, upstanding individuals who dedicated themselves to the service of their country, who led and cared for people, who worked tremendously hard at being moral, ethical, effective leaders. You know, I, I think that balance piece is, you know, they talks about, I think it's, it's critical so that, that people can admit that they were imperfect and they can be motivated to make a change, et cetera. Otherwise, they're going to hide things and they're not going to admit to themselves or others that they were imperfect and they won't role model the change that is needed. I'll also add that it won't incentivize people, women, others who observe low and medium level misconduct to come forward, right? If I am a victim of someone saying something rude to me at the mess, which is where we all gather for social events, right? And if I know that if I report that, that officer, using it as an example, is going to face severe consequences rather than having his, I, I like to call it a safety infraction. He's made somebody unsafe. He's made the environment unsafe. It's not like a negligent discharge of your weapon, right? Identify the, the, the safety infraction, have that safety infraction acknowledged, punished, and move forward. But if that person is going to face significant repercussions because of the current environment does not allow for failure, I will probably look at my boss or my friend and say, the experience I had is far less than that. So I'm just not going to say anything. And then the behavior is not corrected. It's deemed acceptable, right? But so also- What you're, what you're basically the, saying the, is we need, we can't go to like the nuclear option every time. You're saying there's a no. lack, you're saying there's maybe a lack of nuance, a lack of proportionality in the system. There, there needs to be a capacity for proportionality in what is moving in whatever is developed moving forward. It's, it's not zero tolerance. It's punishing failure and demanding corrected behavior as we do with other things. Again, there are obviously exceptions when we're talking about violent or criminal action, right? Or major misviolations of public trust and power in that power dynamic. There are certainly exceptions, but the average unacceptable behavior that happens, those microaggressions, if they're, if that's the term we use, right, that happen constantly, they need to be able to be corrected immediately and then move on, right? And if, if you don't feel as a victim of the aggression that you can speak out because you're afraid of what the impact, the disproportionate impact on the other person, you will not speak out. And then you continue to be the victim of those microaggressions and the cycle continues. And ultimately the burden is always on the victim, right? So we need to create space to identify problematic behavior, have it corrected and have people move on and see that happen. Now, would you, would you, you annotate that to where you are in your career? 
Should we have more tolerance for more junior individuals who are still learning and modeling behavior and less tolerance as we as we move along where we should have had the opportunity to learn and adjust both by age and, and appointment and exposure? Well, it's not only that, it, it tends to be that if it's a general officer making an inappropriate remark to a junior person, then the, the power dynamics and the impact is is a bit different as well. But yeah, like when we think about where the majority of our junior officers who become the leaders of the Canadian forces are trained, it's in a collegiate environment, right? These are 17, 18, 19 year olds, right? In college at the Royal Military College, learning how to behave, learning what the military culture is and what is accepted, right? Kids are gonna make mistakes. We cannot tolerate those mistakes, but they need to be resolved there. And I think how we train our leaders, right? How we decide what is an acceptable and unacceptable, really we need to start focusing at the lowest level at our training institutions because that's where we can have immediate impact, I think. So Leah, since this kind of hit the headlines in in April and I guess February and, and, and leading up to it. You've been quite vocal. You've been quite public with with what happened to you, but also what needs to Me? happen. Me? Never. <laughs> what, what needs to happen in the military and so on. But I'm, I'm curious, you know, since, since going public, you've been having a lot of conversations with other women in the Canadian Armed Forces. You've been having a lot of conversations with people in D&D and, 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 and our Armed Forces leadership. Could you give us a sense of kind of what you're hearing from them, what what they hope will uh, happen going forward? Yeah, so at kind of a unit, subunit level, so my peer group is now lieutenant colonels and majors, and that's the most, mostly who I've been talking with, also some veterans, is that they want to get to work, right? As I mentioned before, Eleanor's letter really gave us permission to be angry and and as that anger has arisen, it's also led to this really steadfast determination that we are gonna fix this. This is what I keep hearing from mid-level leadership in the, in the Canadian forces, especially from women is let us get to work, let us fix this. We have ideas, we wanna do this, this is enough. And I think that they really wanna be heard by senior general officers, flag officers. They want to have their ideas heard and they want to be empowered to do that work. And that's really what I'm hearing from them. There is some antipathy from colleagues of mine who are not you know, commanding officers yet, who don't necessarily feel like they have the, the real power to make change in their units because they're not getting that from their leadership, this desire or this obvious hunger to fix the problem. But I know that the women who are in those jobs are really anxious to, to get to work. And I think that's why it's so important that we don't just have this external review. We now have a new command under General Carignal who can start to put those you know quick pieces, those quick actions into place and empower leaders to organically even start to make change. What I'm hearing from defense is largely, act, it's active listening is what I'm getting from defense, which is a pleasant surprise and not too shocking given who is currently managing the situation. And the one thing I'll say is that 
people have, have asked me a few times, like what's changed, what's different now. Right. And, and, you know, and there's three things that are different now that even weren't there three months ago. First, the leadership of the, of the Canadian Armed Forces is very different than it looked three months ago. We now have uh, General Air as the Chief of Defense Staff, who I worked with and around as a junior officer and have complete faith in. We have the first Vice Chief of Defense Staff that's a, a woman, General Frances Allen, who again, I know very well and has the utmost moral authority. We have a female at the head of the Royal Military Co uh, College. We have a female general who's a champion for women. And we have this new command structure that's all about changing um, culture and conduct with the military led by an exceptional leader in, in Major uh, Lieutenant General Carignan. That's a huge change, right, from what the military looked like just three, year, three months ago. The other piece is that we ha now have buy-in to the Deschamps report Amongst pockets of the Canadian Armed Forces, I believe women especially, right? That was not there before. And the, the third thing that I'll say is that you have people who are motivated, who want to do the work, right? Who are, are driven to make this change. And the Canadian Armed Forces is, you know, it's in the people business, right? This is an organization that's really about people. And, and you now have people in that organization who are, are, are wanting to be empowered to make this change. And that is, that's all happened in the last three months. And so that's incredibly motivating for me as someone on the outside saying, I, like, I feel like this is now the time. This is the TSN turning point. If it's ever going to happen, there's never been a moment like this before. And so I'm really optimistic. Yeah, I, I would just add, we're in a human business. We're in a power dynamic business. We're in a command structure the the power actors in the Canadian Armed Forces are fundamentally different, right? They have authorities and they have a visibility, which means that their actions, they'll model certain things that will become normalized. They're not just being able to role model that, but they're able to force compliance, you know, by their own authority, et cetera. And I would add the deputy minister to that. We have a, we have a woman who is a, is a deputy minister. All of a sudden, around the small table, which is the colloquial term that you use for the leadership, you know, the, the ratios by themselves have changed, like in, in a massive way. And so nobody should underestimate not just, I think, the rank and file top to bottom acceptance of this turning point, but the turning point is now being empowered with a senior level, you know, that has lived through all of these issues and and wants to make wants to make that change. So, look, I would also say it provides no excuse. Like if we can't get it done under these conditions, I I can't imagine a set of conditions, you know, where, where it would be possible. And so although, however embarrassed and ashamed I go back to my opening comments, I might be, I am tremendously optimistic that the conditions have been set for us to, to make the changes needed. Leah, as we're coming to the end of the podcast, I do want to note that a number of politicians have seen your recent tweets and been retweeting them. That includes Jadwin Singh, that includes the, the members of the Conservative Party of Canada who have invoked your tweets in, in Parliament, but have also retweeted them. And you've kind of come back at them and said, you know, this is 
this is not the issue. This is not a partisan issue. Don't use me. Don't use my experiences as as a partisan whip in which in which to beat the government. Not that you're necessarily a fan of the government. I think you're an equal opportunity rage giver at this point, and I'm all here for it. Yeah, um, my rage goes everywhere. It goes everywhere. It's nonpartisan rage. Why did you feel that you needed to say that out loud? And and I mean, I think we spoke to it a bit at the beginning of the podcast, but I think it's just worth reiterating here. Because I really do believe that this is an issue that is, a, unfortunately, it's above politics, right? This is our Canadian armed forces. When you think about how, who represents Canada abroad, there is no organization that does it more frequently and more visibly than the Canadian armed forces, right? We champion the Canadian armed forces for everything that they do. And we have an organization that, you know, is fundamentally unfair to large populations of that organization and puts them and treats them unsafely. And all members of parliament have a role to play in holding the Canadian Armed Forces accountable, right? We have civilian control of the military. So this isn't about who knew in the PMO's office, right? I think the entire, all of parliament needs to get behind this idea of we need to support and put pressure on making sure this cultural change happens now, right? And so when I see members of parliament bringing motions about firing chiefs of staff in the name of sexual misconduct in the Canadian Armed Forces, it just seems so far removed from the actual problem and actually making change, right? What needs to happen is there needs to be pressure on the government to accept the the recommendations from Justice Arbour. There needs to be an acknowledgement of, of what she's doing and that this can help. We need external assistance in this, right? So stop using the line of you're just doing what you've done before, right? You're not making change. No, we need this, right? And then also put effort and um, pressure on the minister, on the deputy minister, on the Canadian Armed Forces to get it done and hold them accountable, right? This finger pointing is not helpful. And if other parties have better ideas on how to be bring how to make change. They should be at the table rather than just finger pointing, right? This is not something that should be used to gain political points, right? Every single member of parliament needs to demand better. That needs to be the focus. I mean, hearing both of you speak, and I guess I'll put this question to both of you. You, you know, there's I, I still sense. Uh, a lot of kind of pride in the armed forces, a lot of sadness about what happened, a lot of anger about what happened. And I'm curious if, if like an 18-year-old who's listening to this podcast comes to you and says, based on what you're saying, there's no possible way I'd join the armed forces. I mean, you know, what would you say? Is it is it, do you still have kind of faith that they will be treated well inside? And how would you respond? So I've had a lot of people ask me that question over the years. And I have to be honest that I didn't really reconcile with my own experiences until Ellie Taylor's letter came out. I'd never said the word I've been raped publicly until I was called and interviewed about her letter. So I'm, I'm still dealing with my assessment of my experience because I'm, I'm letting the blinders off, I guess. But yeah, I still do have a lot of pride in the Canadian forces in, in what my time in the forces gave me, not just resilience, gave me a lot of that, but in terms of the skills it gave me and the people that I met and made friends with are still my closest friends. You know, 
it was the source of my marriage. Like that, there, it just gave me so much. The one thing that I would advise them would be to look around the organization, the trades that they want to join and look to see who the leadership is. Look to see how many women are in that organization. Because this problem is not, yes, it's institutional wide, but there are organizations and trades that do better than others. So I would have them look around. And if they don't see women at that table, right? And a large percentage, large percentage for the CAF in the organization to steer clear, because that's an organization that's going to take longer to, to grapple with this and probably has done less work on trying to make their environment inclusive for women. Mike, I'd be interested in hearing your view on this question as well. So I, I do get the question, you know, would I allow my kids to join? It, we're all informed by our experience. I, I look back at my career and, and notwithstanding some horrendous experiences overseas in terms of operating environments, et cetera, like I, I find I can't regret any part of the decision uh, to join. And so that so strongly informs my perspective on what it gives. The challenge is, of course, balancing what it gives against what it takes and the cost that clearly women, and by the way, visible minorities, have, have paid for their service. I also want to be optimistic that it is getting better. The question is, is it getting better in sufficient time, scope, and depth, uh, as we referred to previously? So because part of me believes that as an institution, the Canadian Armed Forces is such an important part of, of Canada. It the young men and women that go overseas represent us so well. I, I do actually encourage everybody to consider a career. But I find myself now caveating that encouragement with advice in terms of how to look at it. And although that advice doesn't necessarily come along with some of the specificity that Leia talked about, about how you would evaluate that, I don't mean to diminish any of that, just it does, that's not what I provide. I do find myself now saying, you know, you, you have to be aware that you're joining an imperfect organization with imperfect members and imperfect leaders, and that there is a, a good chance, I hate to say it, but there's a good chance you are going to face not insignificant sexual assault, sexual harassment. Here are the things you need to think about, about protecting yourself, etc. But my point is there's so many of them you can you cannot indisputably accept that it's a central element of the Canadian Armed Forces that needs to be addressed. I would be worried if there wasn't outrage. I would be worried that if the chain of command and the changes in terms of the senior appointments that were being made haven't been made. But because there's outrage and because those changes are taking place, I have optimism. I do believe that there is a, a demographic that wants to get after it. I have tremendous personal faith in Wayne Ear. I've known him his whole career. I have tremendous faith in Jenny Kerrigan, the energy and the focus. And with with Lee's, like I could list the number of people. Francis Allen is, is a superb senior officer. I, I look at the deputy minister's performance over the last couple of years during an environment which, quite frankly, she has been the only steady pillar. And so if none of that gives you optimism, then, then you shouldn't join. But I would say I would want people to do that. I would want them to guard themselves. But it is such a, it gives you so much. It's given me so much in my life that I would want good people, good women, good young women to join 
and, and try to make those changes. But I no longer provide that, you know, caution-free advice. This has been a long podcast. It's been an important podcast. I'm extremely happy that we did it. Amar, I want to thank you for being my co-host on this episode. Mike Day, I was always hoping to have you on the podcast and maybe talk about other things, but I, I really appreciate your candor and you coming on to, to share your experience. And Leah, you've really kind of taken on this role at the forefront as someone who survived what happened to them, someone who's speak, sp speaking passionately about this and all in the early stages of your career as an academic. It's, it's a lot to take on. So I want to thank you all. I appreciate this. And hopefully our listeners could take a lot away from this and some food for thought as to what needs to happen and why it needs to happen sooner, if not now, rather than later. Thanks, Steph. Thanks, Amar. Thanks, guys.